teach us to make the most of our time so that we may grow in wisdom teach us to make the most of our time so that we may grow in wisdom greetings Welcome to Two Days Denarius. I'm Ron Thomas. Hey, it's good to be back on the podcast uh, trail here. Uh, I want to say that I've been gone for a little while. I've been working really hard on the YouTube channel, um, getting it growing and uh, investing there. But I have not forgotten podcasts, as you see. And tonight, we are going to go back in history to a sermon that started out with these words. In due time, their foot will slide or their foot will slip. Actually, the passage we're gonna talk about was from Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip, for their day of disaster is near, and their doom is coming quickly. That basically was the verse from the sermon that we know of as sinners in the hands of an angry God that was preached 280 years ago on July 8th, 1741. And what was then Enfield, Massachusetts, but today is Enfield, Connecticut. You know, it's important that we go back in history because that one is noticed as, is noted as the most famous sermon uh, in American history. And uh, certainly in places today, it is considered uh, one of the finest works of liturgy, lit, I'm sorry, liturgy, um, literature uh, from the Puritan era in the American colonies. And given that the year was 1741, Edwards uh, was in the colonial uh, period at the time uh, that he lived. But I want to take a look at this sermon. What made it so powerful? Uh, and what happened during that sermon uh, was unbelievable. It was uh, one of unbelievable impact. Certainly, it was one of unbelievable words. Um, you know, I sometimes say that, you know, a sermon like this, you're not even going to get halfway through it in our times without a pastor being definitely being thrown out of a church. But I have always challenged people to find anything, anything in this sermon that's unbiblical, and nobody has ever ever been able uh, to do that. This particular church in Enfield is about uh, eight miles uh, south of the Massachusetts border. I have actually been to the spot uh, where the sermon happened and the church does not exist there. The, the congregation moved to a different location in 1775. I am not sure if it's in the same building uh, that it's in now. Um, but there is nothing there. The church doesn't exist, but there is a large boulder on the side of the road uh, that marks the place and states what happened there. And I have pictures of myself by that. It's uh, Jonathan Edwards, my theological hero, and I couldn't tell you what an amazing feeling it was uh, to stand on that spot. Um, if you ever get a chance to go to the New England area, there is so much rich American uh, spiritual religious history there uh, it's just everywhere um, 
very well worth uh, taking the tour and go visit uh, so many sites there. Uh, but having said that, this is about uh, the particular sermon. And I, I want to talk a little bit about how this came about. Um, because this particular sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Jonathan Edwards had actually preached it to his own congregation uh, at Northampton, uh, Massachusetts, about uh, three weeks before he actually did this in Enfield. His church, where he pastored for 25 years, uh, was in Northampton. He took over for the very famous, uh, his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. Um, Solomon Stoddard was a pillar. He was the pastor of that church for 60 years in Northampton, uh, the legend. <laughs> and actually, when I went uh, to the cemetery where David Brainerd's buried, I figured because of the how ancient the graves were there that I said, Solomon Stoddard, Stoddard has to be here. And I knew that Solomon Stoddard's house was on the highest uh, highest location overlooking Northampton. And I said, you know, I, I will bet you that Solomon Stoddard is buried right over there on this particular mound, not far away from the grave of David Brainerd. And even in death, Solomon Stoddard rises above. He and his brothers are up on a mound uh, there at the cemetery. Uh, I cannot remember the name of the cemetery offhand. Um, but uh, not far from the grave of David Brainerd are the table, their table graves of Solomon Stoddard. Boy, they are big, they're elaborate, and they're the script on them. You know, it's unfortunate you can't really read the script on so many of those uh, early American Puritan graves. Uh, but it was a remarkable feeling uh, to be there in that history. So that's just a little background on this. Uh, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, had already uh, been preaching there. In 1734, 1735, he had experienced some revival at his own church in Northampton. But when he preached sinners in the hands of an angry God in front of his own congregation, uh, they were cold to it. There was, no, there was no response from the congregation. It's either like another uh, sermon that he had preached or it had just fallen on deaf ears. Um, but on this particular night, and it was an evening when this took place, uh, Jonathan Edwards, for some reason, went down to this church uh, in Enfield. It was the Congregational Church of the city. Um, now let's talk about the city of Enfield then. At that time, um, while revival, revival fires were burning around the New England area um, in this period, at the time Edwards went down there, but Enfield was known to be very cold to it. They had no interest in revival. They were, their town was not part of it. Um, what was happening around them, they had no concern for. They were pretty much cold and indifferent. Uh, they were doing their own thing. Uh, and Jonathan Edwards was not even the man who was supposed to preach that night. For some reason, the other, uh, the one who was supposed to preach was unable to attend. And Jonathan Edwards, being smart at doing what preachers do to this day, the ones that are worth their salt, um, you know, carried a few extra sermons in the bag when he went down to Anfield. And so they asked him to preach. And Jonathan Edwards had made some, Edwards had made some revisions to the text of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God before he preached it in Anfield. 
and the impact of this sermon, uh, it's, it's legend. Um, I would say here that Jonathan Edwards, what he did in this sermon, um, he built imagery upon imagery. And we, as I get reading in that sermon, you're, you're going to see it. And, and as you hear it or as you read it, you really almost feel it. Um, and I, I, it's hard to explain, but you look at the words and, and what the, it did to those people who really had no interest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, what happened was as he was preaching, and Jonathan Edwards, when you look at dynamic or active, he was not a Billy Sunday type behind the pulpit. He was not a George Whitfield. George Whitfield was known uh, for a loud booming voice and he would wave his arms uh, while he preached. He was probably pound for pound the greatest preacher uh, in that colonial period, John, uh, George, uh, George Whitfield was. But Jonathan Edwards didn't preach like that. You know, we would probably look at Jonathan Edwards as uh, kind of boring. He always hand-scripted his sermons, but Jonathan Edwards was a master of the English language. He was a fabulous writer. Uh, he was a genius. I'm sure his intellect, any IQ test would have been off the charts unquestionably. But when he preached in the way he could uh, inflect in his tones, uh, this particular night, it weighed on people so heavily that, or so heavily that they were holding on to pews, they were screaming to be rescued from hell's fire, uh, among many other cries uh, that were coming from the audience that got so loud. In fact, from the only, there really, there's only been one written account of what happened in that in that church that night. There's only one. But it did note that people were, were holding on to pews, screaming, begging uh, not to be cast in the house fire. And they were even begging Jonathan Edwards to stop preaching. The impact was so hard uh, that they could hardly bear it. Something came upon them. And certainly in revival, it's a powerful move. Uh, of the Holy Spirit. So, and it got so loud for Jonathan Edwards that he even asked the congregation to quiet down so he could continue preaching. <laughs> and that's stunning. Uh, but in the end, Jonathan Edwards never really got to finish the sermon. Um, it, he did wind up stopping and and, men, and the ministers who were there wound up going out into the congregation and ministering to them. And of course, after that, uh, the legend was made. Uh, the revivals of 1741, it was called the First Great Awakening because that was a revival. Uh, it was actually starting before uh, the sinners, uh, was, sinners was preached on July 8th, 1741. But this one really kicked it off, and this sermon went into, into print. Uh, um, Whitfield was out there preaching hard, Edwards. Um, and there was really, really, the revival didn't just stop in the New England colonies. It went actually went to the southern colonies as well and over into Europe. Uh, so that's why it was called. And actually, this, this revival got so big, uh, it really is what made Jonathan Edwards a post-millennialist. He thought that the, the, the world was going to get ready through all these revivals for the return of Jesus Christ. 
um, because it was happening. The unexplainable work of the, and moving of the Holy Spirit uh, was so widespread um, that it made him think that the kingdom was on the way, that it, it was coming. So but let's go ahead and we'll, we'll look at this sermon. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about Jonathan Edwards, give a little background on, on him first. Um, and then we will go ahead and I will read some sections. I certainly can't read all of it. But one thing you can do, you can Google uh, search this sermon. It's, you can get the full text of Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Just type in that title on Google and you have access to it. And you can probably get it in PDF as well. Um, I read it once a year around this time. Um, I just do. And really as a minister stuff, it's very much a reminder to me of the importance of preaching the full counsel of God because there's souls out there who need Jesus. And I'm telling you the truth that even what Jonathan Edwards preached in this sermon with the terror that is in it, it's probably not even close to what hell is really like. The doctrine of eternal punishment is virtually ignored. Our preachers in these times are more interested in preaching self-help sermons to their congregation. You know, uh, in a sense, is that good? Um, I don't know the answer to that. I think in the end, what they should be preaching is the full counsel of God. Our hero is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what was important to the Apostle Paul, we know is preaching Christ and him crucified. That's our hero. He is the one where our sermons need to be directed. Jonathan Edwards, I've read many of his sermons. That was his focus in every sermon. If he was preaching on heaven, it was beautiful, but it was always getting people to see the light through Jesus Christ. If Jonathan Edwards was preaching on eternal punishment, I mean, um, on heaven, he was getting people and pointing people to the love of God in Jesus Christ. If Jonathan Edwards was preaching on sin, he was getting and focusing on people to get them to receive Jesus Christ before it was too late. Where are we today and what are we, what are we doing? Well, let's go ahead and give a couple of stats or two on Jonathan Edwards himself. He was born on October 5th, uh, 1703. Uh, he was the son of, of uh, Pastor uh, Timothy Edwards. Timothy Edwards, his dad, and I actually uh, visited that Jonathan Edwards' birthplace too there. And it's now called uh, South Windsor, Connecticut. But back in Edwards' time, it was called East Windsor, Connecticut. And I did see the church that Timothy Edwards pastored, and he was a pastor there at that church for 54 years, and he actually outlived uh, Jonathan. He outlived his son. But Jonathan, how he came to Christ was a, was a struggle for him. Um, he was having great difficulties uh, with understanding and grasping the sovereignty of God, and he struggled with it for a few years. You know, we look at just signing a prayer card and take, used to be going forward for an invitation. But, you know, the way we get commitments to Christ these days, if they're even commitments at all, oh, just believe and you're fine. It's, it's, it's not that. 
Many people in that time went through periods of time of spiritual struggle before they came to Christ. And for a couple of years, Jonathan Edwards was struggling with one issue, the sovereignty of God, until 1 Timothy 1.17 came along. And then that was when he got the new sense of things and received Christ as his Lord and Savior. And that's basically a kind of a benediction toward God, that particular verse. Now to the king, immortal, invisible, it's something of that nature. Um, and I always say to myself, how do you, how do you come to Christ through that verse? But really, there's a, a strong majesty and sovereignty to that particular verse in 1 Timothy. And it gripped Jonathan Edwards' heart because the Holy Spirit was the one who put that calling in him at that time and he received Christ. And of course, uh, the world was never the same after that. Uh, Solomon Stoddard in 1726. So he's an apprentice for two years and he was actually supposed to be an apprentice longer. However, Solomon Stoddard passed away. And given that, Jonathan Edwards stepped in and took over the pulpit. Um, and he was in that pulpit for around 25 years. I'm not going to go into the story how he got voted out of the church, but it was really some unjust moves that were happening that did get him uh, removed. So, you know, what? what is it, a church in Northampton? And I visited that site today. It's a very liberal cesspool. I would not attend that church in any means today. Uh, but, you know, you are the church there that had the distinction of tossing out the most famous pastor in American history. It's right there in Northampton. It stands today. It's a pretty majestic building. Um, it actually, they actually took uh, one of the approaches, a round approach to the church and moved it there in front from the very church that was the original uh, church that Jonathan Edwards had preached and served as pastor, but uh, you know, uh, to have that distinction of the church that voted out Jonathan Edwards, I'd say there's <laughs> something wrong with that one. I would not want that distinction, not at all. But then he moved to Stockbridge, Massachusetts after past the pastorate there, and he became a missionary uh, to the Indians for a few years um, until his calling to Princeton to serve as president at Princeton, which was called then the College of New Jersey. Um, it was actually a, a, a young kind of fledgling school. I think Jonathan came in as its third president because the first two um, had died so quickly. And uh, Jonathan Edwards was gonna be one of those. They'd had trouble keeping presidents early on. Um, and he was wondering if, if the College of New Jersey or what later became Princeton was going to survive uh, because the presidents were, would, would come in and, and they would pass away after a very short period of time. Now, in particular, and I'll encourage you uh, to go over to the YouTube. If you've never watched the YouTube, Two Days Denarius, um, I encourage you to go watch those videos. But um, I, a couple of months ago, I did a video um, on the providence of God and why I took the COVID vaccine. And it really goes into detail about Jonathan Edwards trying to make his decision on whether or not to take the smallpox vaccine. Smallpox vaccine was similar, very controversial in its time. Um, and I really looked at two theologians of the past, Martin Luther and Jonathan Edwards, uh, to try to get guidance, so to speak, from ministers of the past 
on what I should do with the COVID vaccine. And I did that because um, Martin Luther in 1527, uh, 1527 uh, Wittenberg had the, a breakout of the greatest plague in history, the bubonic plague there in Wittenberg. They had a breakout and many ministers didn't know what to do. So I look back on that and I look back on Edwards and his rationale for going ahead and taking the smallpox vaccine which when he did, he, he actually wound up dying two months into his tenure as president of Princeton because he had, he had a very bad reaction uh, to, the, uh, to the smallpox vaccine. And so he wound up passing away on March 12th, I'm sorry, March 22nd, uh, 1758. He was married and uh, he's famous having 10 children uh, his wife, Sarah, uh, very well known for her godliness. And actually, it's documented that she would often have mystical type uh, experiences, probably what would be seemingly charismatic uh, in our times. But, but Sarah was known to have these types, uh, types of experiences. Um, and it wasn't considered anything unusual um, usually when the revival fire happened, people would have different expressions. And, and I'll go ahead, that'll, that'll segue into the point about the great works of Jonathan Edwards, because he was truly a student of revival. Um, he studied it, and that's how the religious affections came out. So I would say if you're listening and you're in ministry, you've never read the religious affections, um, and it was actually a series of three sermons very well worth the reading. Uh, it's one of my favorite works because he was such such a doctor of revival um, that he really wrote down, in a sense, what tended to be real and what tended to be fake. He did a lot of the work for us. Um, in those days, the term for what seemed to be false, it was called enthusiasm. Um, that was the term of what they would use that would seem to be false. Um, but if it was real, you know, it was, it was considered um, what we would use in our terms today. It'd be salvation, or renewal, and things like that, and revival, of course. Um, but Religious Affections outlines that very well. Uh, Freedom of the Will, probably the greatest theolog uh, theological writing. Uh, some consider that, and probably many do, uh, in American history. If not all of history, Freedom of the Will is... Uh, an awesome work. One of these days I'm going to have to, it's a, it's a pretty big work. I'm going to have to go ahead and, and give that one a whirl. But it is noticed, noted to be one of his most famous, if not the most. Uh, the Faithful Narrative of Surprising Conversion. This really outlines, and that is well worth a read, believe me. Uh, it outlines what happened um, in Northampton in 1734 and 1734. Five. It was actually a lot of surprising conversions. He was noting them, what was happening, how, how and why. It was just totally unusual. Consider that, how many people were being converted out of nowhere, inexplicably. Well, it was a powerful moving of the Holy Spirit. That's what it was. One sermon I really loved, it, it's not uh, too long, actually. It's called God, Our Only Portion. Simple sermon, simple in format. But man, Jonathan Edwards was just incredible in that particular one. Along with true saints, when absent from the body are present with the Lord, 
Jonathan, I want to say right here, people try to attach this totally only type of fire and brimstone label on Jonathan Edwards and the Puritans. I want to debunk that. And actually, it's noted, if you go through all the works of Jonathan Edwards and you match up the word heaven compared to the word hell, there's actually more heaven than there is hell in just the word usage. You can, they can be counted up because fortunately we have the digital ability to do that. Um, and if you look through Jonathan's Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, uh, he had a body of sermons preached on many topics, many. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God was just one sermon. He had other sermons on eternal punishment and condemnation. But believe me, Jonathan Edwards could preach just as beautiful on heaven and the glories of living the Christian life on that every bit as he did in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That is not a fair label to put on Jonathan Edwards and the Puritans. You know what they did? They preached the full counsel of God. They weren't afraid to talk about the hard stuff. They didn't ignore it like many ministers do today. And they were good at it, by the way. Let me add that one. They worked hard at it. They were master craftsmen at their job. Far, far better than what we're seeing in modern times. That's it for the editorial comment on that one. <laughs> I'm not afraid to say that. I've watched enough, and we're not even close to what took the type of preaching and the full counsel of God preaching that took place in those times. We're not even close. All right, true saints when absent from the body are present with the Lord was actually the funeral sermon for David Brainerd, the early missionary David Brainerd. It's an incredible sermon. He preached that at his funeral. Um, it was just unbelievable. Long sermons. On John, David Brainerd's funeral, the early American missionary, his his funeral was kind of a long one, but Jonathan Edwards, in a remarkable way, uh, presented a, an honor and tribute uh, to his life um, in, a, in a wonderful, wonderful way. Charity and its fruits, uh, the dangers of decline. That's actually one of his uh, better uh, speech. It's actually one of his uh, on politics. Yeah, Jonathan Edwards has a couple of them on politics, and I actually found those, and I went, wow, I never knew this. <laughs> you can actually go over to Goodreads, and you could watch my writing, or read my writing in Goodreads under two days denarius. Um, I did a summary of that particular sermon in two parts. Uh, God justified in the damnation of sinners. See, he can do that, but that... He was every bit as good as that one as everybody else. Um, God glorified in the dependence of man. That's a famous sermon. It was the first one that he preached to the faculty and students um, at Yale. And uh, Jonathan Edwards went against the grain because the faculty at that time at Yale was really more inclined uh, to think that man was in control. But, but Jonathan Edwards went over there and he, he kind of closed the door on that type of thinking. But far as hobbies go, and there are many other works and many other writings uh, well-known uh, that are great ones from Jonathan Edwards. But uh, he loved nature. Uh, he loved horseback riding. Um, studying insects was one of his favorite things to do, and he had a big fascination with spiders. When he From his childhood, he, he actually was kind of a scientist. He had a scientific mind. 
Um, he wrote some good, great stuff on ethics. Uh, there were, really wasn't much of anything in the intellectual world that he put his mind to that he wasn't great at, long story short. So that's a little bit of the history um, of, of Jonathan Edwards. And I want to go ahead and start reading from some of this sermon. Again, what I'm going to do is get into the imagery uh, section of this. Uh, he, when Jonathan Edwards started the sermon, he had a doctrine section, and it, I think it had like four points to it before uh, he delved into this application-type section uh, where really the impact built imagery one upon another, just one big heavy boulder uh, falling on these people with each point that he made. And that impact was designed to work this way. And I think you'll understand this as I read it. Now, Jonathan Edwards can be a tough read. So if I make a mistake or two, be a little forgiving on that. But uh, I think you'll get the point as we go through here. But one of the things I do want to say is, in many of these, you see a point. Were it not for, so for the mere or the sovereign pleasure of God, you got to remember that phrase, the sovereign pleasure of God, because he oft, often brings that up in here. It's the sovereign pleasure pleasure of God that you are not destroyed. It's only, it's only God stopping you, hanging from that spider's web from not falling into the eternal fire, so to speak. Our, remember, God, glorify, God is glorified in man's dependence. And really, the context of that is seen very closely in this message. But Jonathan Edwards didn't pull any punches. He, he got right onto this topic and it hit them hard. So let me go ahead and read. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and attend downwards with a great weight and pressure toward hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf, and your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all of your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Were it not that it so is the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one moment. You know, there's an entire sermon on eternal punishment right there in that one paragraph. But I'll be honest with you, he goes on. And this is how this builds up one after another. These amazing, monstrously large bricks of imagery. Things that we often don't want to think about that are probably the best way any man could form an image of what eternal destruction is. And definitely a lot of thought went into all of these sections on the imagery in this application area. I'll read another one. There are the black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasure of God for the present stays his rough wind, stops his rough wind. Otherwise, it would come with fury 
and your destruction would come like a whirlwind and you would be like the chaff of the summer on the threshing floor. The, the, like these, this is remarkable. Um, and you see how it builds, it gets more impact. And then again, you see the sovereign pleasure of God in there. That is the only thing that presents them, prevents them from falling. Now I want to say this about the characteristic of uh, what Jonathan said about um, how we live our lives. And this is important. This one to me, what I'm about to read is unique to the rest of the images uh, in this section, in the application section. But I think it's one that's very necessary for us to look at. You'll understand why in a second. The sun does not willingly shine upon you to give you light to serve sin and Satan. The earth does not willingly yield her increase to satisfy your lusts, nor is it willingly a stage for your wickedness to be acted upon. The air does not willingly serve you for the breath to maintain the flame of your life in your vitals while you spend your life in the service of God's enemy, enemies. God and even this creation does not exist for you to serve sin, for you to go out and do your own thing. No, not at all. What a remarkable paragraph. Like I said, this one is unique to the rest of them, but he gives a direct bang right there. You people who are snoozing while revival fires are going on there, you are not here on this creation to serve yourself, your lust, and your own wicked ways. I tell you, Jonathan Edwards did not pull any punches in this sermon. I'll read another one here, but this is one of the most brutal on the list. I read this and it even kind of makes me cringe in a way, but I, I can't say that what he said again isn't true. It is. But it is one of the remarkable images in this section. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice, and he's referring to God justice here, the God justice, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God, and that of an angry God. See, now he had, now he's put in a new phrase that wasn't in the early one. So even God, his mere pleasure is holding back. It does not mean God is still angry at you. And the Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day. So really what Jonathan Edwards added here is very biblical. And that of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps you, or sorry, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Is that kind of cringeworthy? Yeah. <laughs> hard words. In all honesty, there are many, many hard words in here. Uh, but I do want to read one more paragraph here. And this was another controversial image uh, in the sermon as well. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you. Remember, God is angry with the wicked every day and is dreadfully provoked. 
His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is a pure eyes and a bear to have you in his sight, and you are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. At this point, somewhere in here, as Jonathan Edwards was giving this sermon, the people started falling apart. The people started making a lot of crying, shrieking, a lot of noise. You know, even he gets to this point and says, O oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. Tis a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit. He, he's just pouring it on over and over again. And then he talks about four different uh, sections, not sections so much, but there's four different uh, paragraphs talking about the wrath of God and who it belongs to. And he says, first, whose wrath is it? He said, it is the wrath of an infinite God. If it were only the wrath of man, though it were of the most potent prince, it would be comparatively little to be regarded. The wrath of man can be regarded, but God's wrath is you can never ignore. It's impossible. And then second, he says, the fierceness of his wrath, it's the fierceness of his wrath that you are exposed to. The fierceness, so, <clears throat> again, imagery upon imagery, words upon words, noting people. He's never, ever, ever lightening up on any sense. He's actually shifting every gear heavier, moving it more upon them not giving them a chance to breathe or to think, and the wrath of God keeps going through their hearts and minds. Third, the ministry, I'm sorry, the misery you are exposed to is that which God will inflict to that end that he might show what that wrath of Jehovah is. God hath had it on his heart to show angels, to show angels to men both how excellent his love is and how terrible his wrath is. So now you see a comparison of the two. God's love is the greatest of all love, but his wrath is the greatest of any kind of wrath. And then fourth, of course, he says, "'Tis an everlasting wrath. It would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God at one moment, but you must suffer it for all eternity, and there'll be no end to, the, oh, goodness, be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. I have never forgotten those three words. Exquisite, horrible, minis, uh, misery. Unbelievable words. Unbelievable. But this is how it happens. And, and you know, he did have an invitation slash opportunity section in here. And I want to read a couple of that before I get in and read what actually um, the account the only written account, um, I will go ahead and read that to include it in here. Uh, but I do want to read the opportunity section a little bit to show that, that Jonathan Edwards didn't just leave them struggling and suffering. He did give them, there was, he did present the relief to them and the relief was found in Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards always did that in any sermon to get people to flee and come to Christ. Uh, and now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has flung the door of mercy wide open and stands in the door calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners 
a day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, and south. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in. Because revival fires were going on, so it made sense for him to say that. And are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him that has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood and rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. And he did give more in this opportunity section. He's talking about there are those out there who have enjoyed the great revival, who experience what you are now, the crying and the shrieks and the things like that, begging for, uh, for God to save them. Um, and they did. They experienced true revival. And now Jonathan Edwards telling them, this is your day. This is your day. We are seeing it now. This is your opportunity. Um, and, of course, that night, uh, those people who were there uh, did flee to Christ. And, like I say, it became uh, the stuff of legend. So Jonathan Edwards really was totally artistic in his use of metaphors here. And I can tell you, having read his sermons, um, this did veer from his normal path. Uh, the way he handled the imagery application section uh, was unlike some other sermons that I've read. Usually he has a doctrinal section followed by an application section. Uh, this one wasn't quite like that. and made sense why. It was truly written as a revival sermon. It was written in a classic revival sermon uh, form of its times. So... But the metaphors included things like a pit, an oven, a mouth, a furnace, sword, flames, serpent, a troubled sea, black clouds approaching, waters dammed by a floodgate, a bow bent with an arrow uh, to be ready to be made with uh, drunk by, uh, with your blood, an axe and a heavy load that cannot be held. And really by the time he kept building those images upon one another, that heavy load, yeah, was certainly enough to almost like break anybody spiritually. Uh, at that point. So there was a, a man named Edwin Cady who, who made the comment about this. He said, these metaphors of suspension and depression reinforce one another until there is such a sense of impending doom that one can almost feel the weight of personal sin and wrath descending on his or her soul or my soul. And it's true. I, I, really, I really believe that um, because they just get more intense as you go through there. Um, you know, originally he was going to use Psalm 7, verse 11 um, as the uh, passage for this sermon, which in the King James is God judges, God judgeth the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day, which makes sense for sinners in the hands of an angry God. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible translation, which is my favorite, it translates that verse or that Psalm 7, verse 11. Uh, God is a righteous judge and a God who shows his wrath every day. Um, so you see a little variance in there, and I'm not sure why the CSB did it that way. Uh, but having said that, I want to go ahead and take a look at the one account that exists uh, from that night. And it was written by Reverend Stephen Williams uh, of nearby Longmeadow, and he recorded in his uh, diary, the only only account that we have. This is a hard read because there's a lot of abbreviation in it, and some words are halved and stuff, so uh, I may struggle just a little bit on this one. Um, 
But he basically, what he wrote, he said he went over to Enfield, where we met dear Mr. E, which is of NH, and Mr. Edwards of Northampton, who preached a most awakening sermon from those words of Deuteronomy 32:35, And before the sermon was done, there was a great moaning and crying throughout the whole house. What shall I do to be saved? The people that somewhere in there, they started uh, crying, yelling, and uh, shrieking. Oh, I am going to hell. Oh, what shall I do for Christ? And, 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 and uh, among other things. And so the minister was obliged to desist or to stop. Shrieks and cries were piercing and amazing. And after some time of waiting, the congre and Jonathan Edwards paused, is what it's saying. The congregation was still at it, uh, so that a prayer was made by Mr. W, and it's not named who that is. And after that, we descended from the pulpit in discourse. So really, Jonathan Edwards was not able to finish that sermon. The ministers who were up at the pulpit area where Jonathan Edwards was preaching, went down into the congregation, obviously, to start ministering to the people. Some in one place, some in another, and amazing and astonishing, the power of God was seen. And several souls were hopefully and wrought upon that night. And oh, the cheerfulness and pleasantness of their countenances. Yet receive comfort, oh, yet God would strengthen and confirm. And we sung a hymn, prayed and we dispersed the assembly i wrote down on this such was the power and the fear generated by this sermon that edwards apparently was unable to finish preaching it and williams after that he wrote in his own journal again he said that he was affected and moved and ready to dissolve to tears and he could not tell why uh, so greatly impacted by the events and what he had seen and experienced uh, that night while this sermon uh, was being preached. But there was clearly a move of God um, that took place that night. So what can we say? What about our time? Where is the power of preaching today? What, where is the focus on the centrality of preaching? You know, Jonathan Edwards, let's talk about controversy. He didn't, he didn't need to practice plagiarism. He knew his Bible so well, and he was a studier. <laughs> he wrote his own sermons. He wrote his own words. He didn't need to buy his sermons. He saw his main ministry of a pastor was the centrality of the preaching of the Word. You know, here in times like this, pastors buying sermons and inserting themselves in stories that these, where they buy these sermons off the Internet and stuff like that. What kind of nonsense is that? we got to cut that stuff out, folks. If you're a minister, you be a minister. The people of God are counting on you to know God, first of all, not imitate what somebody else wrote. I really was discouraged when I heard about the plagiarism scandal. I was like, what is going on out there? It's no wonder why our preaching isn't strong these days. Because if you got a plagiarized question comes, it does beg the question, do you really know God? If you got to use somebody else's sermons, you got to count on somebody else uh, to write illustrations where you insert yourself in a story with things that never happened, what does that say? I'd say that's kind of phony. That's just my opinion. But there was no phony as what happened that night on July 8th, 1741. 280 years ago today. It is a time to be thought about. It's a time to be remembered. It is a time to be celebrated. But at most of all, in our time, 
It is a time and a thing that we need to pray for again. Like the Psalm says, will you not revive us again so your people may rejoice in you? I'll say that again. Will you not revive us again, O Lord, so your people may rejoice in you? The opportunity, my friends. This is our time. We have to look at where is the power of God. We, those of us who are ministers, we need to consider what we are doing because what, who we represent and how we represent him in both conduct and in our preaching. Why in the world as a minister, why would I base my ministry? I, I have my favorites. I, I like to read and study Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons and stuff because he did a lot of the homework for us. But man, we got to attribute things that we borrow from others properly. <laughs> we just do. We don't need to be stealing other people's stories. We need to chart our walk with God. We need to walk. We need to walk the walk. Living this Christian life is, can be very challenging. But being part of this journey and growing in the faith, people are looking to us to disciple them and help us grow so they can be strong in the faith and, leave, and live the life as we all get ready to meet our Lord one day. Give consideration, and I encourage you to go over to Google if you want to take look up Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Take a read of it for yourself. Um, I do think it'd be beneficial uh, for you. I think you'll learn a lot. Those images you see, there, there's, there are others in there, and they're very much just as impacting. I do want to say thank you. Uh, this 280th anniversary of sinners in the hands of an angry God. I hope you were blessed by it. I hope you get the point. Uh, the revivals, people talk about revival, but I wanted to give you an idea of what we know um, as a truly re real revival, uh, what happened in its time. So in the end, I wanna say thank you for listening to today's Denarius. I'll try to post podcasts as often as I can, but if not, I am available over on uh, Two Days Denarius on YouTube. Uh, go on over there. I actually did post uh, some very important videos um, on what's been a, a horrible trend uh, within the Christian community called deconstruction. How people are deconstructing their faith and leaving the faith, uh, going through this process, which is actually unbiblical and one that is guaranteed uh, to cause you to fall away uh, from the true faith. So we look at that and we look at true spiritual examination along with apostasy. And those are certainly things uh, that are good for all of us to keep up with. All right, until next time, uh, this is Ron Thomas. And I do want to say uh, thank you for listening to today's Denarius. And may God richly bless you. to make the most of our time so that we may grow in wisdom to teach us to make the most of our time so that we may grow